0: Okay, we're looking at Haggai. We stopped on page seventeen the last time we were here, but let me review where we are up to that page seventeen. Uh, we're look we're looking at Haggai chapter one. This is the message about rebuilding the temple, and. Uh, we had looked at the superscription in verse one or the introduction. And then we were looking at point two that began on page four. It's the development of the disputation sermon, encouraging Judah to rebuild the Lord's temple. Now, remember a disputation means you're challenging somebody about their position to show they're incorrect and hopefully show them the right way. So it's, it's a term that's used for that. And it summarizes what I just said real well. It's just not a term we usually use unless you have a kid that's disputing with you. Uh, you may not use that expression. But nevertheless, that's the type of thing we're talking about here. So we had looked at the explanation of the problem in verses 2 to 7. And then we had moved over uh, to page, the final part of this section is on page 7. And I think we stopped right at B, the solution to the problem. Now remember the problem was, they were supposed to rebuild the temple. Because they were not, they were experiencing a judgment from God that affected their their livelihood, the agriculture, also uh, their families, uh, reproduction was slow down. Remember for Israel, Planned Parenthood was the more the merrier. So that was a good thing back then. Uh, I know uh, we thought Planned Parenthood was a great thing. Planned Parenthood was two, so we had three. So... I think of one of our profs, Dr. Eloisi. What do they have, six children? And they're seeking to adopt two from Ukraine. Everything doesn't fall apart, I guess. <laughs> uh, so he says, the more the merrier. <laughs> well, that's what it was for Israel. So the, they're called covenant curses because God made a covenant, a contract with them. If they did not do what they were supposed to do, God would remove some of the blessings. And that's what he's done here. Now, to correct that problem, we see that on page 7, point B, the solution to the problem, Judah's obligation to rebuild the temple. Look at verse 7 for a moment. Or, I'm sorry, verse 8, excuse me. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Now, notice here in this verse, there's a series of commands. You probably noticed that there was a go up. Now, I have this in my notes. The first one is go up. That's in italics. Go up into the mountain. The second command is bring down. Bring down timber. And the third command is to build the house. The emphasis with this series of commands, no doubt, falls on the last command, building the house. The other stuff's preliminary. It's necessary stuff, however. So they're supposed to get up and get timber. Now we need to remember here, the temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C., So the crafted stone and stuff like that, when the temple was built, what was built was the wood part of it. What was burned up was the wood part of it. They did not burn the stones. The stones are still there. And so what they need to do is because wood goes into the building project, they need that. More than likely, they've already collected that wood. The timber here is probably... Talking about additional stuff in a supportive role, but whatever the case may be, they need to bring down fresh timber to help with the building. So that's uh, that's why they're called upon to bring down the timber and then to build the temple. Uh, that's the key thing here. Now, notice the rationale at the bottom of the page for rebuilding the temple. And we read it when we read the passage. It's that God would be glorified. Notice the so that there. So that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So we got two things there. God's pleasure and for him to be honored. May I say that's pleasing to God. It glorifies God. And that's the point. So here, like today, you'll hear a lot about the glory of God. Your church is for the glory of God. Our church is for the glory of God. Uh, That's part of stated purposes because it's such a significant thing in the Bible. But we can see that sort of thing goes back even into the Old Testament. That's always been paramount is that we honor God. Now, in this passage, they're supposed to honor God by obedience and that's that's how we honor God it's when we faithfully obey now notice I say faithfully it does seem to me that we could just obey out of drudgery because we don't want to face any problems well faithfully does not mean that we do it because our heart's in it and that's the point That's where God takes glory. Well, let's move on to page 8, point C. The reiteration and expansion of the problem. The Lord's enforcement of the covenant curses for Judah's disobedience. And if you have a question, just speak up. You don't need to raise your hand or anything like that. I don't want it to seem too much like a classroom. So... Like I've said before, you can do everything, just don't tackle me. I tell my seminary students that. (laughs) So I'm not real big on even them raising their hands. But nevertheless, that's my only requirement. Don't tackle me. I've gotten more fragile with age. So, but anyway, let's look at this last part here. Verses 9 to 11. Notice, first of all, a reflection in the first part of verse 9 on their present negative circumstances. If you'll notice, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. So they're looking for a lot, like in a harvest, They're looking for a banner crop. That's what their expectations were. But what they get, meager as it was, God blew on that. It was even worse than just a meager harvest. And uh, he says here, why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with your own house. Well, that's, I mean, I think we understand how we're well, if we build a house or even if we're looking to purchase a house to a real estate agent. There's certain anxious moments there. We're caught up in it. You know, We don't want to you know, go to a real estate agent and let that hang on for months and months as sometimes it can happen today. But nevertheless, we want to get it done quick. Because that's where we're going to reside. That's where we're going to put our head down at night. You've got to put it down somewhere. And you want it in your own place. Or the place you rent. But you want a place you consider your own. Well, I understand that. But the problem for Israel, they had the same motive. But there was something that was more paramount than that. And that was rebuilding the temple. Because, see, the place for worship should be the priority. And they minimized that. And so God, can I say, God's ticked off? I mean, he's frustrated with it. Israel was a special nation. God gave them special blessings. And yet they consistently turn away from him in disobedience. They're taken into the Babylonian exile. They're gone for 70 years. They come back, and yet their disobedience is still manifested. Now here, it doesn't seem to be as bad. We think idolatry is pretty well stamped out after the Babylonian exile. So it's not as bad, but may say disobedience is disobedience whether it be small or great this is a great thing because the place where they're supposed to worship they can't do it so they have to have temporary accommodations but that's not what God wanted so it's because of his house that's why they're in the problem Uh, did you notice in verse 9 with this house that's in ruins notice that's declaring them guilty now it doesn't say that in the text but notice when you put that together with their expectations they don't get it God blowing away their crops the point is that was that was Their disobedience; they were guilty. With all disobedience, there's guilt. Uh, People suppress it. Suppress it long enough, they have a nervous breakdown. Many other things, but that's what they were doing. Now, if you'll notice, with the two uh, dotted eyes, look at a declaration of divine judgment in verses ten to eleven. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the field and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands, everything you do. So, God took this very seriously. Now, I mentioned two weeks ago, we don't need to look at Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, but you could mark that down. That's the passages that spell out the covenant blessings and curses. Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. And what's interesting in both passages, they're pretty long. I think, you know, 50 to 70 verses. It's the first 10 to 15 verses that pronounce the blessings. The rest of the chapter is devoted to curses. I think God understood the nature of the Israelites. May I say also humanity? And so what he's hearkening back to is all those covenant curses I told you about. You're experiencing that. I mentioned... As far as uh, their family reproduction, that would be cut down. Also, as far as fertility with their crops, their animals, I shouldn't, with crops, I guess we don't think of fertility, but, you know, their growth. Uh, But with their livestock, that affected them. And when you affect farmers that way, that means the next generation could be affected. So this is just bad news. Well, in any event, we can see this would have created an economic hardship. Notice he says in verse 11, I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine. You know, I've read that, but notice they're hitting the products. their produce, I should say. So, this had serious consequences for their disobedience. Well, this is one chapter that I do like to read. Generally with Israel, when they're disobedient, they continue in it. Now, they may face some type of a monumental disaster, but they return right to it. In this text, in the same chapter, something good happens to them. Let's look at verses 12 to 15. The positive response to the disputation sermon Encouraging Judah to rebuild the Lord's temple. Uh, look at the people's positive reaction in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadok, the high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him Haggai, and the people feared the Lord. So notice it's stated here they're they're obedient. I note that. Also their fear. In old Testament thought sometimes fear is terror. But there is also reverential fear. And I might have mentioned to two weeks ago, but in the Old Testament, the word uh, God-fearer is talking about one who has faith in God. The more common term in Old Testament salvation terminology uh, for believers are God-fearers. In the New Testament, it's called faith. What in seminary I usually do with my students, I always challenge them on this point You know, we say we don't want to fear God. Friends, we rob ourselves of the Bible. There is an aspect we should stand in dread of God in one sense. If God did not put us in Christ, we would be in Adam. And that's a state of condemnation. And the consequences are eternal. So we need to fear him who control, who can destroy both body and spirit. But there's another sense for God's chosen people, I'm not talking to Israel, I'm talking about believers, that they can also have a reverential fear. There's still a fear, but it's reverential. And what's interesting, Uh, In Genesis 22, remember the story about uh, Abraham? He's going to offer up Isaac. Well, in Hebrews 11, it talks about how Abraham did that by faith. But you know, if you go back to Genesis 22, I don't think faith is used at all in that chapter. But God does say to him, Now I know you fear me. And the reason why I point that out See, the Old Testament concept of faith, of fearing God, there's a sense of, of dread. But because we know who He is, it becomes reverential when He regenerates us. But what I like about the Old Testament concept of faith, by expressing it by fear, that suggests... In salvation, God was Lord. We have people in our day who water down the concept of faith. It's called easy believism. You just pray a sinner's prayer and you have eternal life. Friends, by the way, the New Testament consistently interpreted is against that. But the Old Testament is most especially against it. Because this term for God-fear is used so often. And that does not suggest just praying a sinner's prayer and living like the devil. So that's why it's so significant. So in my seminary classes, I usually point that when we go through Old Testament poetic books. In fact, I'm going through it now. And uh, I've tried to make this point to them. And we'll actually walk through some aspects of Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11. But in any event, that's a theological perspective. All my colleagues at the uh-huh. seminary, hold on to, may I say, our graduates too. Your pastor and Matt Owen, our graduates of our seminary, they believe the same thing. So they do not believe in a watered-down faith. It's a faith. It's what we call lordship salvation. So, anyway, they believed it in the Old Testament. I'd go on, but I'd uh, unfold too much of my theological mind that may not be helpful. Then let's look at the content of God's Word. Notice he says here in verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Notice this statement, this statement reflects the Lord's presence here. And by the way, the presence of the Lord is associated with rebuilding the temple. Um, I don't want to reflect another of my theological hang-ups. You know, it does seem to me that sometimes we really don't think God's omnipresent. But He's everywhere we go. Even when I was a believer, may I say, the Holy Spirit and His omnipresence permeated me. I always say indwelling in the New Testament, uh, all that is is an expression of the saving relationship of God In his people through the work of the spirit. There's a sense. God was there before that. He just not was. He was not I say. Salvifically working in us. But he was there all the time. In fact he had to be. If he's omnipresent. But what he did is. When he regenerated us. The spirit. We talk about taking up residence. But what we mean is. He has a saving relationship with us. He's working to renew us in the inner person and that's what he does to our Christian life. In fact, without the indwelling ministry of the Spirit uh, with our regeneration, we'd fall back into our state of depravity. We need the Spirit's presence to maintain the Christian life. Now the point of this, there's different uses of God abiding with people. Now notice here, His presence is reflected with him working so that they do rebuild the temple. And that's the point. So that's used in different, like the Spirit of God's in the Holy of Holies. He was in the Holy of Holies in a unique way that he was not with us. So it's using expressions of the Holy Spirit's unique ministry, but it's not meant to say, as here, I am with you. That doesn't mean he wasn't with them before. He's working in them so that they'll rebuild the temple. I don't know, does that make sense to you all? I mean, I remember thinking about that when I first became a Christian. You know, I, you know, I was a Freudian psychology major. And, you know, but I was raised Presbyterian. I just rebelled against it. And, but I always thought, it's this, a this little strange terminology. You know, he now indwells me but yet, whatever else the Presbyterians held to is God's omnipresence. <laughs> uh, by the way, good Baptists do too. <laughs> Not all Presbyterians hold to that today, today. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> So, But we're, when we see this expression, I am with you, that can be used different ways. Here in the context, it is describing how the Spirit's going to be with them to rebuild the temple. And so that would be the point of his presence. Then notice verses four. Oh, go ahead. Where he says, I am with you. Mm. Would the Hebrew text for "I am" be the same as when he told Moses, mm-hmm. "Tell him I am, it Yeah, it'd be the same thing, okay. except here it had the prepositional phrase "with you," but it's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, 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 what's it in Greek? ego a me I thought I forgot my Greek for a moment but when it's describing God in uh, Exodus 3 it's ego a me I'm the one who's always with you so anyway but so this is a specific work of the spirit now notice the conclusion of the chapter verses 14 to 15. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. Uh, Notice here, that's stirring up. He's somehow arousing him internally. He's awakening him to the challenge of rebuilding the temple. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, uh, the spirit of Joshua, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, notice, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. And then he gives us a date on the 24th day of the sixth month. What we should notice about the day, this is 23 days after Haggai's first message. So they put feet to what they said they would do. That's the point. Well, I say this is a, one of the more optimistic chapters in the Bible because they're called on the carpet and they do respond positively. And by the way, there's not many chapters like that. But this is one of them. Okay, any other questions on that? Okay, let's go on to page 9 then, message 2. The promised glory for the new temple. And maybe before I go on, I should say this practically about the first chapter. Remember, God challenged, was challenging their priority about rebuilding the temple. Applicationally, we're not building a temple. But we are called upon to keep our priorities in line with what God requires of us you know, the New Testament tells us what we're supposed to do. I'm thinking primarily of the epistles. Some of the things in the Gospels we would not do. But in the epistles, unless something's just real contextually defined, and there are a few things like that. But generally, that's where we see our commands. And there's a number of them in the New Testament. Paul often ends a letter with the focus on their responsibilities. So we don't have to wonder what we're supposed to do. But God does challenge us to make sure that our priorities are His priorities. So when He says, we're supposed to love one another, our priority should be that. When we're called upon to treat our spouses respectfully... That's a priority, Um, right? (laughs) My wife would raise her hand and say, "I object." No, she wouldn't do that. (laughs) Yes, go ahead. For about seventy years, (laughs) right? About seventy years. Um, God had to take them into captivity about two almost two generations were there then they come back and rebuild the temple so you know this is where really where you'll see that when they were in dispersion this is when you'll see the rise of the synagogues because they needed places to worship god because it couldn't be in the temple and by the way even when they're in israel they didn't go to the temple every sabbath day many people lived far away they didn't have cars So the priest had some type of system they were supposed to administer for worship. But they were called upon to worship at the temple three times a year. That was their responsibility. So really, not having that for 70 years, can I say they were dysfunctional in the Israelite religion because they did not have it? So it's it's the key place for the worship. So anyway, that's restored when they rebuilt the temple. Any other questions? Okay, great. Or as a football player, my French class used to say, Tres, tres being. We had to say Tres bien," Tres bien, I should say, but he could get away with it because he's a big football player. So I say that mockingly of them. I was more concerned about the Trebian myself. But I don't look like a football player to start with. Okay, so let's look at the second message, the promised glory for the new temple. Seven weeks have gone by since chapter one. The first message. And four weeks since the people have actually begun building the superstructure of the temple. It would be four years before they would finish the temple. But they did did get the foundation laid. Now, no doubt, the initial enthusiasm that they might have had has worn off. I mean, in seven weeks, a lot of water can go in that fire. So here... uh, there's possibly two reasons that explains their discouragement the first one is the work of preparing the site demanded more time than what they anticipated. second work would have also been hindered due to the many feast days of the seventh month I mean you got your Sabbath rest days you got the feast of trumpets. Uh, On the 10th, you have the Day of Atonement. You have the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a festival month. Uh, I've had a few seminary students jokingly say it was the party month. Well, that's not right. Their festivals were more dignified than most of our parties. I, I think as Christians, we do have parties that have dignity to it. But, you know, typically what's around us in the world, it's not very dignified in my estimation. And probably not in yours either. But uh, perhaps that would get a little bit more closer to the solemnity of this. But it doesn't completely do it. We're not Jewish and we don't understand the serious nature of this stuff. But it was serious. So, that's where they are. God wants to exhort them. To avoid their discouragement. Look at number one. Dense favorable comparisons with the Solomonic temple. That's in verses 1 to 3. Notice verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. So, notice we have the date here. Notice we have Haggai mentioned again. We call that the messenger formula. So, he's speaking again. And, uh, furthermore, we have a date assigned here. Now, this would correspond to about October 17th. It would have been 520 years before Christ. So, we have specific information. Um. Notice when Haggai is speaking here, we call that special revelation. That is, it is a direct word from God. That's what we mean by special revelation. Uh, notice also the command to address the problem in verse 2. Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadok, the high priest, And to the remnant of the people. Ask them. And notice. This is where the reflection comes in. Point C. The question reflecting the problem. Notice here. Haggai raises three questions. Ask them. Who of you has left. Who saw the house in its former glory. Secondly. How does it look to you now. Thirdly. Does it not seem to you like nothing? So notice the first question here in my notes. Verse 3a. Notice he mentions the former glory. This question reflects that there may have been some returnees from the exile who had initially been taken into exile. They'd be fairly old at this point. But they could have enough remembrance of the temple to be saying, this isn't going to be anything like Solomon's temple. So I think perhaps that's where this type of thought comes in. Uh, Notice on page 10, my second paragraph. Notice furthermore in this question how the Solomonic temple is referred to. This house in its former glory. Why well, do put his pause there? He says, This house, the one they're building here. In 520 BC, that house is called his former house, but they're building it now. And God's can I call it his his program temple? he considers the new temple, Zerubbabel's temple, to be identified with the first temple. I think the text is very clear. This temple in its former glory. Um, You know, to me, we'll talk about eschatology tonight. That's talking about prophecy. But there's about four significant temples that could be referred to as this temple. One includes in the kingdom uh, the new temple, the final one. And so I guess my point is, with the first and second temple, we can see a continuity here. He's going to talk later on in this chapter, in the first part of the chapter, about his eschatological temple. But notice my point. I'm trying to set up here. In God's program, as far as the temples go, I call it God's temple program. He sees the continuity between the first, the second, the third, and then the last. And I think this text points us in that direction because he will go on and describe the new temple. But at this point, we see the connection between the first two. So we have to reorient our thinking on that because often when we rebuild something, uh, I guess if you have the same foundation, you could talk about it rebuilt. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Uh, but here it's very clear what God's referring to. Um, I was just thinking when I was a child, when I was when a child, when I was in high school, uh, somebody's house burnt down. And that laid there dormant. But they rebuilt the house a number of years later. I guess I could have said something about the former glory in comparison with the second house. But always the second houses were all, this second house was more glorious than the first one. <laughs> but there's some type of continuity there. So anyway, uh, notice the second um, the second question, how does it look to you now? And he is saying, look, compare the former glory of the temple with the present glory or lack of glory. Then the third question, does it not seem to you like nothing? Literally, is the likeness of it as nothing in your eyes? The reason why I point out the literal translation It's because I want to get the picture in your eyes. We're envisioning this. And this seems like nothing. That's the whole point. See, this temple would lack the Ark of the Covenant. So how could it be the same? That's a pretty significant thing. By the way, uh, with Solomon's temple, in fact, it started with the tabernacle, but... when when Moses wrote the various sections of the Torah, you know, the five books of the Pentateuch, the originals were put in a tabernacle. Now, in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, they could not, by the way, the average person back then did not read and write. So even if they could go into the Holy of Holies and check out the originals, they wouldn't have been able to read it. Now, the educated, which would include your priest, they could read. But it was very selective to those with the right education. You know, like it was in our country, you know, 150 years ago. So, that's where they were. But also, see the scriptures that would have been stored up in the Holy... By the way, almost from the beginning, with the tabernacle, they would would move around. Copies were being made from the very get-go because the priests were supposed to use those. They were reading copies. Many, many copies would have been written. Hundreds of copies. But they did not have access to the Holy of Holies. So God instructs in Deuteronomy 17, kings are supposed to make copies. But by the way, the implication is that was good for the kings, but it was good in their day because they couldn't go in the Holy of Holies. So copies have been using for a long time. These would have been handwritten copies. Were today, after the invention of the printing press, and today with the computer, I mean, we could crank out Bibles left and right now. So times have changed. But for them, it was they were hand-printed. Hand-copied, I should say. Well, in any event, what would be missing would be the, the Scriptures, the Ark of the Covenant. So it could not be as glorious. That's the point. Well, then notice the Lord's encouragement to overcome the unfavorable comparisons with the Solomonic Temple. Notice the Lord's exhortation to be strong in verses 4 to 5. Be strong, Joshua. Joshua. Be uh, be strong, Joshua. Uh, I'm sorry. But now be strong is a rubbable. Then we got be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. So he wants them to strengthen themselves. But notice he also says, and work. So the second thing I have itemized is work. And it means what it says. Rebuild the temple. Then notice he says, finally, do not fear. Those are the three commands here. David had given Solomon a similar set of commands with the same reason as here in these two verses in First Chronicles 28.20. So God's used this before. Notice also then the reason for completing the reconstruction of the temple. That's in the last part of verse four. Again, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Now remember the context the abiding presence of the Spirit, the focus is rebuilding the temple. That's why certain people, um, their skills are put into effect here to rebuild the temple. And the people, as they helped, they were all, God was with them. So that's where the I am's are coming in here. Um, This, and my spirit remains among you. That is basically the same thing as the Lord's presence that we saw uh, in the previous verse. Okay, let's look then at verses 6 to 9, the Lord's promise concerning the future of the temple. Notice with these verses, these verses announce what the Lord intends doing on behalf of the rebuilding of the temple. He will harness his sovereign sway over nature and nations in order to provide the wealth that would necessarily fill the house with glory. In what the Lord is about to accomplish, leaders and people will observe the reason for God's assurance and encouragement that he will be with them and they therefore need not be afraid. The considerations of their lack of wealth and material are irrelevant here. The Lord is their king and their shepherd. They shall want nothing in the service of the Lord. He is the Lord Almighty. And this is what he says. The very sovereign Lord, omnipotent. All that power is with them. Well, let's look at the content of verses 6 to 7. This is where I think we see a little bit of a transition. Here in the first part, we're in Haggai's day. Now, Haggai is going to give us a prophecy about the future. Look at verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth the sea, and the dry land. Now, let's pause there. Notice, I itemize, first of all, the Lord's shaking of the universe. Notice here, there's two facts that we should note in this verse. First, once more implies that this is an event that has already occurred, at least on one occasion. I think of Exodus 19, 19 verse 6. Remember Sinai? Moses on the mount? The people come near and it shakes, it quakes. You know, to me, that would have put a sheer terror of God in my mind if I was one of those Israelites. I mean, that would be better than seeing you know, a 3D movie. And they're pretty awesome but I don't tremble at those. I am entertained though. (laughs) Um, So notice, this once more suggests that it was done earlier. Exodus 19.6 is an example. Judges 5.4, the earth shook. This is no doubt, refers to the supernatural intervention of God at places such as the Red Sea. That's still a miracle that's very hard for me to conceive of. Israel's going to cross the Red Sea. God parts it. And they walk across on dry land. And the foolish Egyptians who follow after them, the water drowns them. May say, that would have been impressive, but scary. But I think I would want to say, I thank God I put that blood on the doorpost when I was in Egypt. By the way, way, even some Egyptians did that. But uh, now that doesn't mean they were saved. But that does mean that they obeyed God. So here, there's at least those two points where God supernaturally intervened. But there's a second thing I want us to know. Notice on page 12. In a little while, this refers to the certainty of the event. This is what we call a temporal adverb. Notice a while, a little while. That's temporal. Here, this temporal adverb may refer to something that will occur shortly or even something that occurs could occur in the millennium. In temporal context where the Lord is clearly doing something, His action is certain to happen. So I take it here that this temporal adverb is simply pointing to the certainty, not the immediacy of it. Then we have the Lord's shaking of the nations. Verse 7. The shaking of the universe is no doubt primarily done in order to affect the nations in such a way that they contribute to reconstructing the temple. And I point out here that some of the things we see described here are similar to Zechariah 14, 14, where it's discussing the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord occurs at the end of the tribulation, in fact, it really starts at the beginning, but the terror, the terrible day of the Lord occurs at the end of the last three years, last three and a half years. So when I consider that language, and it's the same with Zechariah 14, Zechariah 14 is an eschatological context. It relates to rebuilding this temple again. And it does describe things like shaking, uh, taking care of the nations, So, I've concluded that this looks to the future. Uh, Now, the key thing here in verse 7 is is really verse 7. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all nations will come. Have you ever seen Handel's Messiah performed? The desired of all nations. I don't think this verse is talking about the desired of all nations. I mean, he's not desired of all nations right now. He will not be desired until the kingdom. So, anyway, the the word used here, it's inconsistent with that. Now, I discuss a lot of things here about this, but there's two different interpretations we can take of this desire of all nations. One is individually, and that refers to the Messiah. And I described some of the supports that are used for that. Um, The problem with it is the word translated as desire, is not desired. There's an incongruity between the verb being plural and this being singular. I, Because of that, I take this as a collective use of desire. And what that means, that harmonizes beautifully when you have a plural verb. Now, that's probably not meaning that meaningful to you. You'd have to know a little Hebrew. So I'm going to bypass that so I don't bore you to death so let's move on let's go on to the next page my strongest proof in saying that that's not the desire of the nations is that the Messiah has never been desired of all nations he's been shunned by all nations so it doesn't really fit I think the collective interpretation is better so collectively, it's talking about desire. The desired objects of nations. The wealth. That's the point. Um, and I discussed that further. And it does get a little technical. So I'm going to s- skip by that. But the point, the easiest way I can prove that this is ref- referring to like desired wealth is verse 8. And that's where we'll go to because I think that says it all. Look at verse 8. Well, let me go back to verse 7. What is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. Now, I don't like the New International Version's interpretation. They're implying here, they take it individually uh, and judging by some of the notes in reference to the Messiah. I think that's incongruous with verse 8. He says, verse 7, I will fill this house with glory. What do you mean? The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. What's he talking about? The wealth. but that's always been desired by nations. So he's speaking here of the uh, nations and what they may put into rebuilding that future temple. So all their wealth will be at the disposal for building the temple. Uh, It'll be a monumental thing when we see it. But right now we can only take it by faith. It's hard for me to conceive. You know, we've been to Israel. And we've seen this, the Jews and the Palestinians squabble over that property. But even today, what's what's there? It's really from Herod's temple. But it's just so impressive. But that future eschatological temple, as it's described in Ezekiel, um, I think it's 30 to 38, it will be even more beautiful. So the wealth of all nations will be used in building that. I think that's what he's referring to here. So I have a lot of technical discussion there. We're going to skip over that. By the way, I reduced my notes. They were a little bit longer, and I had much more technical stuff. And I thought, well, this is not good for God's people. They don't want to get a Hebrew lesson. If they wanted that, they could go to seminary. <clears throat> I'd be glad to teach them. So, anyway. Ken, you're welcome. I appreciate that. <laughs> You taught Dr. Combs how to shoot a gun. I'll teach you Hebrew. <laughs> I have no trouble with English. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Well, we'll stick with the English Bible then. So notice, we do see on page 15, the Lord's having the temple filled with glory. Also notice the reason for the promise in verse 8. All the wealth belongs to God. That's the point. It's His. And that will be used to rebuild the temple. Notice the results from the promise in verse 9. There's two results from the restoration of the temple. Notice he says here, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Notice the temple that was being built that we call Zerubbabel's temple didn't have that glory. This temple, notice the text says, will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, I understand this to be going on in the millennium. Um, And what counts for us is that we do know Christ, and we will be part of that. But I don't think I could use word pictures to describe the beauty of this temple as it will be. But you can see it in Exodus. I think I said 30 to 38. It's 40 to 48, excuse me. It's the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. It's impressive. Well, anyway, that brings us to the end tonight. and We can stop here and then pick up next week with C. Now, are there any questions before we uh, break up here? Break out. So you're saying then that chapter two is basically prophetic. I would say verses one to nine. I don't think the interlude in verses ten to I think it's nineteen. I don't think that's prophetic. I think of the last part of this. So we can say we have a parenthesis there, so to speak, as far as God's future temple glory guys yep so that's that's how I would divide it up though I should say Ezekiel 40 to 48 no in fact if you read the details there it doesn't fit with this temple that's one of the great things that people reflect it's just incompatible with it so anyway, okay. Other questions? Okay. Well, thanks for being back tonight. I was afraid after that week break, that week off, you might have got discouraged. We needed this chapter tonight to see reasons for encouragement. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, but we'll pick up there next week. Got to get here so we can get get through this so we can get to Malachi. That will take us a little bit more.